I'm going to be reading from some passages in Revelation, so please stand as you're able. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God, who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen, hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. To the one who conquers all will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. For as, but as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for the murderers, the sexual immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. And I saw no temple in the city, for its, the temp for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need for sun or moon to shine in it. For the glory of God gives it li its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. But its light, by its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the, in the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river 
of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit in each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. What a good word it is. You may be seated. The last two chapters of the Bible. Woof. Well, we are in the last of a last week of a series called The Holy Seas, Worship and Witness from the Book of Revelation. And you might be able to repeat this with me verbatim now because I've said it six weeks in a row, but there's a pedagogical purpose for this, okay? And it is a series about Christian worship. It's about what we do in the sanctuary and how by God's Spirit, God forms us to be a certain kind of people through the things we do together, to have a certain kind of witness before the watching world. And what we've said, we've used the central image or metaphor of a meal. And we said worship is a feast every week. And we said weeks ago at called that God rings the holy dinner bell for his people to come back in to remember who he is and who they are and what their purpose is as a worshiper of God. That's the gathering, the call, the invocation, and the adoration. And then we said cleanse because before you eat the supper, you got to wash your hands. And in the Lord's worship, God cleanses us. By his grace, this is confession, this is assurance, and then God gives us his new peace, a new shalom. God makes a new community. And so we start gathering around the table, and as we gather, we notice who's in the family, baptism. We hear the family stories, creeds, and the family script, scripture. And then two weeks ago, you start holding hands, you present and share your dishes, and you pray together. So prayer, community life, and tithes and offerings. Last week, we finally ate the meal, communing. Now that you've been fed, now that you've been nourished, you are sent out from the table, sent back on mission with God, commissioned. That is what we look at this week, the benediction, which literally means a good word from God, a word of sending to be on mission, to be blessing the world and the nations in Jesus Christ. That's what we look at today. Let me pray for us. Father, Son, and Spirit, we give you thanks because you are the source of all love, all blessing, all goodness in this world. Because of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, we have a hope, and we have a living hope. We ask that you call to our minds this hope today, that you would make us a people of hope that bear hope into our world, which is often so hopeless, so full of despair and doubt and confusion, turmoil. Help us be instruments of love and justice and peace. And we ask that you change us today by your word. And we say with Peter, where else could we go? For you alone have the words of life. We pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. 
Throughout my high school and college days, I was into this show called Lost. Anyone ever heard of Lost? Yes, all right. I might about be about to crush your dreams, but that's okay. All right. I was seriously into it, okay? I, it started about midway through my high school years, and I followed the show all the way before the end of college. I mean, I was evangelist for Lost. <laughs> I converted many people to the show. I watched the early seasons over and over and over again, wasting hours of my life I will never get back. Lost was a show about a group of people that were on an airplane together. Y'all remember that? It crashed. It split in half in the air, and, the, and it crashed on this island, and somehow some of the people survived. And you start to hear the backstories of their life, and, and the show starts to tell, and, and you see that there were these mysterious connections between all these groups of people. And the show started weaving this tapestry between people's backstories. And you're like, dang, man, these people are good storytellers. It was all well and good until about the fourth or fifth season of the show, okay? And you know, American television always runs too long, and people start uh, doing funky stuff, and I remember this sinking doubt start to creep in as I was watching the show. Because the show's writers, they started doing funky stuff like messing with time travel. And okay, if you're, if you're a writer and you start doing time travel, that's when I know you got you, all the tricks on your sleeve are gone, you know? And so they start doing time travel, and I, and I start to doubt, and I say, oh, I wonder if the story writers don't actually know what they're doing. Hmm. And sure enough, when season seven rolls around and the finale rolls around, my doubt and confusion had turned into outright cynicism and despair. <laughs> because the finale was like this postmodern crazy scene of people hugging in a church sanctuary that made no sense. It made no sense. It didn't wrap up any loose ends. Nothing had any resolution. The, the writers, they didn't know what they were doing. Y'all see where I'm going? I think there's a lot of people walking around in this life who wonder if the story writer knows what he's doing. I'm seeing all these storylines in the world. I'm seeing the way my life is going. I'm seeing the characters that I've been introduced in the backstory. And I wonder if it's going to end in any way that brings any resolution, any justice, any explanation. And of course, we're always living with this devastating thing called the problem of evil. And so there's this gnawing hopelessness over the state of our world. There's a rampant cynicism. And there's a major sense of nihilism, which means everything is meaningless. Nihilism is very strong in our world. It's hopelessness. And so, you know, if everything's meaningless, I might as well try to get all the pleasure and treasure I can out of life now. Y'all know that's the spirit of our age. And I don't know what you think about the Christian hope for the world. See, the brand or variety of Christian hope that Christians have often shown in their lingo or in their writing or in their songs has often been pointed in the direction of escape, of getting out of the world. This world is not my home, is a common line. I'll fly away. Oh, glory, I'll fly away. <laughs> and that has deeply affected how, how Christians have lived and moved in the world, especially in the context of America. Many Christians have neglected the work of justice. They've neglected the work of praying for change, for systemic change, of working for change, not only in our society, but in life. Because, you know, why bother? It's all going to burn up anyway. We're just oiling and toiling the wheels of a machine that will one day roll off the face of a cliff. And so when we reach the end of worship together, week in and week out, when we get to this fifth sea of commission, the benediction, what does the world that we have created and hear, the story that we have told together and hear, what does it have to do with your life in the real world? 
So often, if, we, if we're honest, Sundays, and maybe the Christian faith in general has been shrunken down to be sort of like an afterlife insurance plan, you know, a, a spiritual quadrant of our life for the spiritual hope of the afterlife. That, however, is not Christian hope. That, however, is not the vision of Revelation 21 and 22. That's not how the story of Scripture ends. Heaven, you're right, it is currently the dwelling place of God and the departed and the Lord. But the ultimate destination of where God and his people will dwell is not heaven. It is the descending of heaven to the earth. That is Christian hope. So Christian hope is not for the escape from our physical life here. It's beginning with the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. It is for the hope of re, the remaking of all creation in this earth. And we can taste and experience little glimpses of that now. You know how the, the weather's been changing in D.C. for three days? The, when I walk outside in the morning, the cool, chilly air meets me and it says, fall is coming. Fall is coming. The church is to be people of a future backing up into the present. And, and people should be able to see a sign of things to come when they see the church. Because the church lives between two points of reality. On the one hand, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, the beginning of the new creation, and then the renewal of all things. We live in that in-between reality. So we want to look together at the shape of Christian hope and Christian calling in the world by examining two aspects of our theme of commissioned here. A new city and a new calling. A new city and a new calling. A new city. First, John says, we're going to start in chapter 21. I gave you all about five chapters of scripture, but that's okay. We're going to get through it. Then I saw a new heavens and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. The sea was no more. I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven as a, as a bride adorned for her husband. Here in the beginning of our text, heaven comes down to earth. Get that direction right. Heaven comes down to earth. There is a new heavens and a new earth gloriously combined and pictured as a new city. And the language of new here doesn't mean altogether fundamentally different than what was before, but it means that fundamentally things have changed in the way that they work. Just as in the resurrection of Jesus' body, his body wasn't destroyed, it was rebirthed, so it shall be with Christian hope for the world. Not things being completely and utterly destroyed, but be things being remade. This new heaven, this new earth is where God will dwell. And that's why it's called Jerusalem, because Jerusalem was the dwelling place of God in the Old Testament. God will dwell there with his people. But I got to talk about chapter 19, right? You know, the thing I included before chapter 21. I told you I'd be including it this week, uh, the judgment of the prostitute, okay? I decided to insert those first five verses of, of chapter 19 there because it's important how we understand the story that Revelation tells and the story that Scripture tells. See, I told you a few weeks ago that the book of Revelation introduces some main characters because it tells a story. And on the one hand, it has the main character of the Holy Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and the unholy Trinity, right? The dragon, Satan, and the two beasts, which represent all the powers and principalities and rulers, ungodly rulers of this world. But another way it tells the story is by, by contrasting two ladies who are two cities, that's the way it tells it. And so the first lady it introduces is in Revelation 12, and it's the church. It's Jerusalem. It's our mother. That's what the scripture calls Jerusalem. And so that woman, our city, the church, is contrasted with this evil woman in Revelation 17 and 18, who is known as a prostitute, an unfaithful woman. 
Most interpreters take this prostitute in 17 and 18 to be a direct allusion to the city of Rome itself and the Roman powers of the day. The text says that she, the prostitute, had lived her life in luxury and arrogance. She hadn't feared God or worshipped God. She had treated no... She had treated others with no regard for their humanity. She had oppressed humans, and even Revelation 18 says she had sold humans as slaves. Not only this, but the prostitute had killed God's people as well. And so the cry throughout the book of Revelation, really beginning right at the beginning, is the cry of any oppressed people, which is, How long, O Lord? That is the cry of the book. How long before you bring justice, before you bring your visitation, your judgment? And that question is finally answered in these last chapters, beginning with 18 and going on through 20, where the prostitute and the dragon and the beast and all who have the mark of the beast and follow the beast are are cast into destruction, into fire. We shouldn't get caught up too much in the imagery of a prostitute. It's just a literary symbol or an image because you got to, if you know the story of the Bible, you, you realize that prostitutes play a pretty important role. Uh, they are often heroes in the story. If you think about uh, Tamar in Genesis 38 or Rahab in Joshua 2, they, they actually are shown as faithful ones, you know, and God uses people who are working or trapped in the sex industry to accomplish his redemptive purposes. And you see, in Jesus' ministry, he often spent time ministering to prostitutes, those trapped in the, in the sex trade, you know? So don't get caught up in the imagery too much, but what the imagery says is very important, and that is that God will judge the world, that God will eradicate evil from his creation, and that the story writer has given evil an expiration date. So as, a, as uncomfortable as us moderners might feel with the wrath and justice of God, surely the thought of a God without justice is an unthinkably worse reality. N.T. Wright says it like this, the biblical doctrine of God's justice is rooted in the doctrine of God as a good, wise, and loving creator. Because a good, wise, and loving creator hates anything that spoils or defaces or distorts or destroys his beautiful creation. And especially the highest of his creation, which are image bearers, which are you and I. If God is not utterly determined to root out from his creation in an act of proper wrath or judgment, the arrogance that allows people to exploit, bomb, bully, and enslave one another, then God's not good. God's not loving, and God is not wise. That is why the scriptures praise God for his justice. I can no longer think about the justice and and judgment and wrath of God without thinking about Walter Scott's mother. You remember who Walter Scott was? Walter Scott was an unarmed African-American man in Charleston, South Carolina, who was shot on video, if you remember, running away from the police. He was shot running away with empty hands. And they put Walter uh, Scott's shooter, Michael Hager, on trial. And as painful, uh, painfully often happens in the history of Southern trials, it was a hung jury. Justice uh, was not done. And so Walter Scott's mother comes out of the courtroom after this trial. And she kind of comes speaking with a fire in her bones, okay? Walter Scott's mom. You got to look up the video. And she says in front of all the news cameras and CNN and all that stuff, she says, oh, he will get his justice. Justice will be done. She says, because I know Jesus, and I'm just going to wait and rest in the Lord because the joy of the Lord is my strength. And she said, you know what gives me the power to talk about this? Jesus. She says, I don't care what man says. I don't care how things look. It's not over. It's not over until God says it's over. 
That's what Walter Scott's mama said. It's not over till God says it's over. That's what the book of Revelation says. And so that's why in the scripture, oppressed people and the church always praise God for his justice. They say in Revelation 19, your judgments are true and just. That's why people praise God, because he will see them and vindicate the problems of this world. He will vindicate what has been done. And so the text contrasts this evil city of Babylon with the city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven. And all throughout the book of Revelation, the church of Jesus are called not to fool around with Babylon. That's, what, that's the imagery the text uses, all right? Again, the scripture, it ain't always sanitized and family friendly. They are called not to fool around with her evil ways, her materialism, her greed, her idolatry, her oppression. Jesus' people are called to be in the world, but not of the world. And Revelation shows us this picture of what that means. And it helps us see the difference by showing us the glimpse of the new city. And that's how we see the difference between the new city and the Babylons that we live amidst. So, that's what we want to do. We want to look at the new city by examining the nose of the new city, okay? N-O apostrophe S. The things that are not true about the new city, that we might have a vision for what God's vision of shalom and peace and righteousness might look like in the end. The first no is the sea. I saw a new heavens and a new earth, for the first heaven and first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I think this is symbolic imagery because in the Bible, in the book of Revelation, uh, throughout actually the whole story of the Bible, the sea represents the forces of natural destruction and chaos and evil. It represents natural disaster. When our relationship with God broke, the story of the scripture tells, when shalom broke, our relationship with the creation around us broke. Because image bearers of God were created to have dominion over the creation. When God made man, he said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and over the lives stock and over every living thing on the earth. You and I were created to be rulers of creation. We were created to have dominion and creativity, not only over the sea, but over uh, trees and plants and animals. We We were meant to rule these things with creativity and power and goodness and love, not with the forces of exploitation or pollution that we have often ruled creation with. But we're often fighting against forces we can't control. On uh, the lighter side of this would be uh, a few weeks ago, I was having lunch with Sam Logan. And if you know Sam Logan, Sam, I don't, is he here? Sam, are you here? No, he ain't here. Sam has a bunch of fruit-bearing trees in his backyard, okay? He's got, uh, right now he has fig trees that are producing like millions of figs. If you need figs, just call him. A, a couple of months ago, he, his peach tree was producing a lot of peaches, Okay. But he talked about this struggle with me, and he talked about the struggle with the squirrels. And he said that he could not grow peaches uh, to be big and nice and plump peaches because the squirrels ate them all. And so he said, I'm a crazy person. He, he invited, uh, sorry, he installed these devices on his tree that were motion detectors that when the squirrels jumped in the tree, it would shake the tree and scare the squirrels away. And he put up a cage around his tree and still the squirrels ate his big, nice peaches. Man is fighting with creation. 
that's on the lighter side, but of course we have hurricanes and fires and droughts and just things just don't work like they're supposed to. There's uh, not a distribution of food and there's hunger and, and the creation groans, says the Bible. It, it groans under the brokenness of everything. And so here in the new city, our relationship with creation is restored to shalom and peace. That's, and, it, and it says in Revelation that that, that men and women will reign with Jesus forever and ever. That's language of royalty, kings and queens of creation, exercising dominion and creativity forever in the new world. What a beautiful story. The second and third no's are no death and no pain and no crying and no mourning. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with men. He will wipe every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. Hallelujah. There is no more universal fear in humanity than the fear of death. It takes our breath away if we think about it. It is our universal nightmare. So much of the anxiety in our life can be traced ultimately to a fear of death. People hoard and hoard all their money because they think it will protect them from the forces of death. People use millions and millions of dollars every year for, by putting creams on their face and bodies just to prevent, pre prevent themselves from appearing to age so that they might not die. People hoard guns and ammunitions galore to protect themselves from the forces of death. And our culture has a weird uh, relationship with death because on one hand, our news cycle is fascinated and fixated upon death and all the deadly things that are happening in our world. And on the other hand, we numb ourselves with all sorts of things to make us forget about it. Entertainment and advertisements that tell us that we can guard ourselves from the forces of destruction around us. You ever think about death and just it kind of wigs you out? Kind of takes your breath away? You ever have near-death experiences in a car or a plane? Well, see, Christians are to be those who resist any sentimentalization of death. Any idea that death is, quote, natural. Death in God's world is quite unnatural. God did not make a world of death, but God made a world of life, of immortality. So Christians are those who say death is a curse. And that is why Jesus came to reverse the curse. Christian hope says that beginning with the resurrection of Jesus' body from the dead... We hope for the resurrection of our bodies. And I'm in, I know many of you are living in the fact that death is not just a nightmare for you. Death has come true. You have lost those you love. And so we in the church and we as pastors have often said with many of you at many times to say, why did God let this happen? You know, you're asking those unanswerable questions. Aren't, isn't God big enough? Isn't God powerful enough? Does the story writer know what he's doing? Nothing is more painful than death and loss. This is what Jesus comes to address. It was his hatred of death that drove his love all the way to the point of death. It was the death of a friend that made Jesus weep, if you remember. And in his dying and in his vindication and rising from the dead, Jesus has dealt the final blow against death. Jesus has begun to reverse the way that death works. Death worked in reverse in Jesus. And it's the beginning of the sign of what we will see one day as we look in faith and expectation. Because in the new city, the end of the story is important because death is literally swallowed up by life eternal. Death is swallowed up in victory. As Tolkien said, everything sad will come untrue. And so the end of the story is important because God is so physically close with his people. He dwells so physically with them that he himself wipes 
the tears away. And what I think is significant about that is that it shows that somehow we bring a semblance of our pain and tears into glory. Because Jesus, when he rose the dead, he still had his scars. And I think what the story reveals is that somehow we bring that pain into glory and that God acknowledges the pain, dignifies our pain, and wipes the pain away. Death is swallowed up by life. And it's, just not, it's not just for the healing of us individually and our own griefs and our own pain and our own mourning and crying. But we see in 22 verse 2 that the leaves of the tree of life provide the healing for the nations. What a thought. The nations, entire groups of people, different. And that word, of course, literally means ethnicity, ethne, ethnois, whatever it is in the Greek, I can't remember. Different cultures, languages, tribes, tongue, people, tribal conflicts, wars, bombs, years of systemic oppression, racial terrorism, all the accounts of our world, all the scars in our world that demand justice now, but often don't get it. That demand that someone say that is wrong now, but often don't get that either. Those are brought into glory too. And they are seen and dignified and wiped away by God as well. The leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. What does it look like for that to back up into the present now? That is what the community of the church is is supposed to be picturing in our world. A world with divine reconciliation and justice. The fourth no. There's no evil or cursed things or people. To the thirsty, I will give life from the spring of water without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage. I'll be his God. He'll be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable for murderers, sexually immoral, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire. Nothing unclean will ever enter into it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false. Only those written in the Lamb's book of life. Mm, Have mercy. Those verses are hard and heavy, aren't they? Because hell is a subject in the scriptures that I, the preacher, and that you, the reader or hearer, would often like to gloss over, right? God's judgment upon things and people and evil people in the end feels like bad news, doesn't it? But as I've said, a world without God's justice is a world you don't want to be in. That's what your life teaches you. And so those who have suffered tremendous evil at the hands of people, this is good news. Because we don't often mete out justice correctly in our world, of course. We need an ultimate visitation. The wiping away of evil and injustice and immorality and those who do them, do those things. But for now, on this side of things, we look at that list and we say, but but I lie. I've been cowardly. I've been false. I've been sexually immoral. My heart is idolatrous. Indeed, I have, and indeed you have, people of God. We have, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, says the scripture. We should all meet this kind of justice revealed here in Revelation 22 and 21 for how we have spurned God, how we have damaged God's creation, how we have damaged one another, how we have damaged everything around us, how we have vandalized God's good world and not given thanks to God as we ought to have. Where is the hope for the world? It is seen here. It is seen here. Most vividly in verse 6, do you see that verse? To the thirsty, I will give from the springs of water of life without payment. Jesus said in John 4 to the Samaritan woman, whoever drinks of the water that I give, he will never be thirsty again. And Jesus said on the cross, I thirst after he drank to the dregs the cup of the justice and the wrath of God on our behalf. That is the story that the scripture tells, that he drank it up for us and therefore we receive. How does the scripture end? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but, but... We are justified by his grace as a free gift 
through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus and those who put their trust on the lamb who was slain, who carried the sin outside the camp, who bore the penalty, those are those who find their name written in the lamb's book of life, who find God's name written upon their forehead where God said, this one is mine. That is God's grace. And also I should know from a human perspective, you see, those who in the end meet God's justice and God's wrath are not those who are saying, oh, but God, I've been a liar. I've been a murderer. It is those who love their own sinful passions, who love evil more than they love God. It is those who seek to glorify themselves and not glorify the creator. As C.S. Lewis once famously put it, there are only two kinds of people in the end. The one to whom God the Father says, sorry, the one to whom you say to God the Father, that thy will be done. And the one to whom God the Father says, fine, your will be done. The fifth no. Because of the eradication of evil, there are no closed gates. Amen? And his gates will never be shut by day. Nothing unclean will ever enter into it. There won't be anything accursed. The throne of the God and the Lamb will be in there and they will worship him. It's this eradication of evil. It is this judgment of God. And I know it's heavy, folks. I know it's heavy. But it is this that makes a world safe to live in. Ultimately, where we don't have to fear the violation or the vandalism of evil. We won't have guns or wars or bombs or fear any of those things. There won't be any terrorism or security checks or background checks. There won't be any vulnerability. No looking over your shoulder in the dark alleys of the night. No lying, no cheating, no stealing, no racism, no hatred, no violence. Don't you want that? We long for a world like that. And that is why the visitation of God is so important. That is what the story tells. The last knows. There is no temple, there is no sun, and therefore there is no night either. I saw no temple in that city, for his temple is the Lord God, the Almighty. The city had no need of a sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. In the new city, there will be no churches. <laughs> there will be no pastors. There will be no priests or pulpits of God. I will no longer have this job. I can just finally start playing the piano again, and I can just be in the kitchen, all right? I don't need a pulpit anymore. Pastor Russ don't need a pulpit anymore because no one needs to teach you about God anymore because you'll be with God. That's what the vision of Isaiah had. No one will need to teach this one or that one about God. There will be no mediation, no symbolism, no sacraments, nothing, no temples because we will just dwell with God and his light will shine like the sun. And G.K. Beale says that the point here is that nothing from the old world will be able to hinder God's glorious presence from completely filling this new cosmos or the saints from unceasing access to that divine presence. And that is why it's significant that our text began this morning that, behold, the dwelling place of God is with men and women. Where did God dwell in the Old Testament? God dwelled in the temple. He had to go meet him there. Or God dwelled in the tabernacle. With us, God dwells in us by the Holy Spirit, and we are a living temple in the Lord, says the scripture. But you see, back in the Garden of Eden, God needed no temple because the earth was the Lord's temple. And Adam and Eve strolled with God in the cool of the day, perfect communion between heaven and earth, and that is the restoration of the grand story that we see here. Unfettered access to this God. God is a beautiful storyteller. Amen. That is the vision for the new city. Those are the no's of the new city. That vision is what we carry with us into the world as Christian people. Do you understand that? We are looking for an invasion of the city, the new city, into our cities, into our neighborhoods, into our homes. That is the commission 
that we have received too. We have received a new commission after the vision of a new city, and that is to be builders for the new city. Everyone say builders. Builders for the new city through our labor, carrying this vision of the new city into each sector of our life, whether in the workplace or the home or anywhere on the street. And you say to me, how? How does my labor, whatever it is, how much money, if any, it may make you, much of our labor doesn't make us no money. How does it matter to God? How does it matter to God's kingdom? How does it matter eternally? That is the question. You see this picture I've been using here for our sermon series? I haven't talked about it. And now I get to talk about it. Amen. That is the dome of one of, sorry, one of the domes of the cathedral down here in downtown Brooklyn. This is the lamb who was slain. It's this beautiful dome that rests over the altar there in that huge cathedral. You should go look at it. And this is the centerpiece, the lamb who was slain. It is a grand mosaic, okay? It's made up of a lot of little tiny tiles, if you know what I'm saying. You see, this past December there at the big cathedral, they had a big party. I don't know if you knew about it. Thousands of of Roman Catholics came from all over the world to celebrate it because they finally finished the last dome of that building of construction that had lasted for nearly over a hundred years of construction. And so they had this huge celebration once finally the last tile was put in place. (laughs) And all along the way of the construction of this cathedral, you had multiple generations of workers and laborers placing a little tile here, all right? A little marble here, a little paint here, a little wood trim here. See, many of these workers wouldn't even live to see their work come to completion. What they had to do was just rest in the task they had been given for that day or rest in the dome that they had been given to work on for that year or for those years, they had to trust that there was an architect somewhere that knew the design of the building that they were building. They had to trust that every little deed put before them was according to the design given to them. Many generations would work and labor and toil on that building, never seeing the end of it. (laughs) Let me tell you this, people of God, we have been written into God's story. And the work that is laid into our hands in our too short of lives We can't comprehend how it fits into the building, into the city that God is making. How this little deed here and this little deed here and this little work project here, how how it is going to be somehow presented or somehow last eternally. We aren't to know all of that. It is not for our minds to know. We now live with the eyes and the hands and the feet of faith, (laughs) knowing that the story writer knows what he's doing. And we are called to do all the little things in our life with great love. Little things with great love and hope. Therefore, in our vocations and the things we are called to, whether we're cleaners or whether we're a CPA, whether we're a dancer or a doctor, whether we're a homemaker or a home builder, whether we're students or chefs, whether we're musicians or marketers, we are called those, we are called to be those who steward our vocations and our life for the sake of the new city that is coming. To look for ways to bring about an evasion of the new way of doing things into the old world of doing things, who live in the light of the resurrection of Jesus. One of the best chapters in the whole Bible is 1 Corinthians 15, right? You know that chapter where the Apostle Paul talks all about this whole story from old Adam to new Adam in Christ and and the resurrection of all things. And he he gives that glorious picture of the resurrection and says, death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? Y'all know what I'm talking about? Do you know what the last verse of that passage is? Maybe I'm going to help you remember. 
Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. The doctrine of the resurrection is not a pie in the sky hope for heaven. It is the impetus, the fuel, and the motivation and the hope to work your tail off here in great hope that God is doing something new in the creation. There's this old gospel song that Melissa and I love to pieces, all right? It is called, Is My Living in Vain? Y'all ever heard that song? Come on, somebody. All right, it's easy. It's by an old gospel group called the Clark Sisters, all right? And it is a slow, driving, E-flat minor blues jam, all right? And, and, uh, and the singers, they ask these questions throughout the whole song, this series of questions. Let me ask you if you resonate with these questions. Here's what they ask. They say, is my living in vain? Is my giving in vain? Is my praying in vain? Is my fasting in vain? Am I wasting my time? They just ask this litany of questions over and over and over again. And each verse builds to this chorus that is a, an absolute shout where the lead singer says, no, of course not. It's not all in vain because up the road is eternal gain. That is Christian resurrection power. Because you are not oiling and toiling the wheels of a machine that one day will roll off a cliff. Absolutely not. You are laying the groundwork in your little deeds or in your big deeds, usually little deeds. You're laying the groundwork for a new city that is coming. Every hungry mouth you feed, you are building for a new city where there shall be no hunger. Every floor and room you clean. I was having a dinner the other night with Brother West, and Brother West told me that God created him and gave him the gift to clean a room. He said, when I clean a room, it sparkles from top to bottom. You ain't never seen a clean room like that. That's what I'm talking about. Every single room you clean, you, clean, you build for a new city that is coming that shall sparkle with golden streets. Every just law you write or enforce as you do the work of justice in your vocation, you are building for a new city where justice shall roll down like a mighty stream. Yes, every diaper you change, you are building for a new city where all God's children shall receive tender love and care. Every piece you compose or play, every oboe you, or horn you toot, you are building for a new city where the harmonious sounds of praise and thanks shall never end. Every person you house, every just housing initiative you join, every housing security you address, you are building for a new city where all God's children have a place prepared for them. Every spreadsheet you make, you are building for a new city with order and functionality. Amen. And then we see this amazing verse here in 21, 20. I see you, Chris. I know. I, he got some good spreadsheets. And then we see this amazing verse here in 21, 25, that the kings of the earth will bring their glory into the new city. Their glory, it says. When humans work for the glory of God, ruling over creation with right and proper dominion and love, it's not only God who is glorified, we are glorified in the doing of the works of our hands. And somehow, meaning in the kingdom, in the new city, all of the works of our hands, and not only that, our culture's work, the beauty of our cultures, the good things, the just things, they will be brought in like this great procession, and God will praise them. And God will say, yes, very good. Yes, very good. Very good. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Because you got to remember that in Jesus Christ, you are fundamentally not a redeemed sinner. You are a redeemed image bearer, meant to do work in the world. 
Think about all the things that will be there in this great gallery of glory. What will it be like? Man, have you ever tried to imagine that? I See, what I imagine is like, hey, man, have you tried to mac and cheese over at Miss Martha's Kitchen on 250,000th Street and I? Have you tried the Vietnamese food over at the joint on the, the, the intersection of Broad and 300,000th Street? I'm going to go to Duke Ellington's master classes every day. I'm going to go to Pastor Russ's barbecue joint. Many people have tried to paint the picture of heaven and the glory of being this this boring, uh, trapped in an eternal praise and worship late night infomercial. All right, but that is not the vision of Revelation 21 and 22. How many of y'all have been bored or scared at the vision of heaven? No, heaven's a city. You like living in a city? You like doing human culture and art and and creating things? You like making things? That is the vision of glory. It ain't going to be boring. It ain't going to be boring. But for now, we live in the old world. And as Walter Scott's mama said, we just have to wait on the Lord and rest in the Lord because the joy of the Lord is our strength. And we have to live with the eyes and the hands and the feet of faith because things are still toiling and troubling here. But you see, Hebrews 11, when it tells the great uh, hall of fame of faith of all the people of God of old in the Old Testament who lived by faith, it says, They all died in faith, not having received the things promised. But having seen them and greeted them from afar. You see what it's saying? And having acknowledged that they in this present world are strangers and exiles on the earth. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. And therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. For he has prepared for them, what? A city. That's the story that scripture of God, uh, the, the scripture tells. So people of God, God has prepared for us a city. But lest we think as we move out on mission with God that this is up to our expertise and our power alone, Jesus gives us his benediction, all right? And that's how we end today. Verse 5, a commission, a calling, and a benediction from the Lord Jesus himself who says, Behold, I, I am making all things new. He said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said, It is done. I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. This is the benediction that, God, that Jesus gives to these uh, Western Asian churches from the book of Revelation, living in 90 AD. A vision to keep them keeping on. A vision to keep them going when he says, I am making all things new. This is what I am working to build. This is Christ's vision of flourishing and shalom. This is what he's doing in our world. We have to reject escapism from the world. That is true. But we also have to reject act, absolute activism, meaning that the belief that it's only up to us, or if we do the right moves, or if we get the right people elected, that that we're going to make a utopia out of all this. No, this is up to Jesus to bring the final conclusion to his story. We have to wait and hope. I hope I've said we should be working our tails off on mission with Jesus. Yes, Lord. But we should not despair because we're going we're gonna to do things like I did yesterday. I'm gonna, I, yesterday, my boys and I got out in the alley and we cleaned up the alley. We did because Melissa asked us to. But, you know, <laughs> two weeks later, it's going to be a mess again. I'm going to tell you that. It's going to be a mess again. But that's okay because we are giving people pictures of the new world. And it's important to see the last verses of the book of Revelation, the last verses of all of the Bible. The Jesus who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. And the people of God say, Maranatha, amen, come Lord Jesus. So we are awaiting this new heavens and this new earth. And we see that Jesus is the main actor of the story. Jesus is the main hero of the story. He is the one making all things new. He is the one who is the story writer 
Because you and I are not the point or the hero of the story. It's always been about him. It's always been about the Alpha and Omega, the one for whom and through whom all things were created, the one who descended from heaven and took the place of a lamb who was slain and ransomed a people from God from every tribe, tongue, and nation, the one who was the firstborn of the dead, the Revelation says, the one who is the rulers of the kings of the earth, the one who was the faithful martyr, the faithful witness. The one who does not leave us alone, but sends his spirit and his word to seal us as his own, writing the name of God upon our head. The one who gives us his very body and blood to keep us nourished and fed by faith as we live on mission with him. And who one day, after he has gone and prepared a place for us at the Father's throne, shall welcome us at the marriage supper of the Lamb. This is the one who says, behold, I am making all things new. This is the story that I have endeavored to tell for six weeks that our worship service tells every week. It's the story that the book of Revelation tells. And you know what? It's the story that the whole Bible tells. This is the gospel. And I proclaim to you today that that story is the truth. Not only is it the factual or the historical or the uh, whatever truth, it is the existential truth. It is the truth that will make sense of your life, who you are, what you're made for. And so I invite you to come into this story. Come and taste and see the goodness of the Lord. Amen.